Hello and welcome to the RISE podcast series, where we aim to explore the stories behind education research and practice as part of the multi-country research on improving systems of education endeavour funded by UK Aid, Australian Aid and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Hello and welcome. My name is Carmen Bilafi and I am a research associate for the RISE program. In this episode of the new RISE podcast, I will be speaking with development economist Dr. Ritva Reinika on the importance and pitfalls of financing in education systems. Ritva, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Carmen. So Ritva, you have a wealth of experience and I... I want to highlight just a few of the things that you have done in, uh, in, in your lifetime. So currently you are a professor of practice at Alto University and the Helsinki Graduate School of Economics. Uh, you are a former director of human development in the Africa region of the World Bank. And overall you have worked with uh, and for the World Bank for over 20 years. Uh, you have also co-directed the 2004 World Development Report, Making Services Work for Poor People. You've had positions at UNICEF, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Finland, and you are also the former chair of our own RISE Delivery Board. That is really a wealth of, of experience, Ritva. <laughs> Thank you, Carmen. It's a pleasure to be here. So first of all, I would like to start with a bit more of a personal question to you. Can you tell us a little bit, because you are a development economist and you have not worked exclusively on education, how did you get into education and why is education an area that continues to intrigue you? Well, that, that's a good question, Carmen. And, and I often think about it myself. I studied in Oxford and there is the Center for the Study of African Economies, where, where, which was a tiny little unit when I studied there in the early 90s and did my doctorate. So I did macroeconomics and, and trade policy. Trade policy was very popular at the time. But after I finished, I became a country economist for Uganda at the World Bank in the early 90s. And it really was uh, Uganda, and specifically in Uganda, the Ministry of Finance, that set the agenda forward. So we did have a lot of... It, it really made a macroeconomist to focus on micro microeconomic issues. So... So Uganda was one of the first countries uh, in Africa and even globally that went uh, the, for the universal primary education, big initiatives. Um, and that, that brought education on the agenda. Um, we did, um, in the context of, uh, of my being the country economist for Uganda, we did microsurveys on everything. The government had done uh, household surveys, a series of them. Uh, they needed help in data cleaning, analysis, and, and so forth. Um, I was involved then doing the first firm survey there. Then we decided, oh, we have to survey the NGOs. And it was quite remarkable. There were more NGOs in Uganda than firms, which is still a puzzle. 
Uh, I don't think that probably should be the case. Then we went to school surveys, health facility surveys, etc. So, uh, but then the education, the universal primary education agenda really became big. So it was really determined by Uganda and in Uganda, the Ministry of Finance, which is the which used to be and still partly probably is the linchpin of of that post conflict reform reform and recovery that. Uganda has experienced. Well, then now it's just, uh, I think the, the fact the, and the evidence on the learning crisis has been really convincing. And there, of course, Rice and Lant Pritchett, the leader of Rice, has already almost perhaps a decade been, uh, been working on, on the issue that when you do the look at the learning outcomes in countries. Uh, children are not learning. Pupils are not learning. So I think that has kept me participating in this agenda. The The RISE itself is a great program, so, so you really become uh, interested in it and it generates a lot of new information. The other thing perhaps today also is the fact that I work a lot in my home country, Finland, and Finland is an education country. So it's kind of natural to be interested in education there as well. Um, so so both the past and the present, uh, the agenda, they, they are big issues to solve. There certainly are. I want to stay for a moment with the past experience that you started to talk about with your work in Uganda on the big budget reform that was happening there. And what I always found most interesting and intriguing about the way you described your work there was really this linchpin function of the Ministry of Finance. And this is usually not an actor that people think about first when they think about how do we reform education systems? How do we make service delivery better in education? Could you explain a little bit what your experience was with this reform and why the Ministry of Finance turned out to be so central in this? I think in it, it's, it's good to frame it that way because it so happened in Uganda, but in some other countries, the the nexus for reform and change may be something completely different. So that's why I want to be always country focused because the situations are very different. But it is indeed true that in that kind of, let's say, devastation following Amin and Obote regimes, uh, the war that then brought uh, uh, President Museveni into power in, um, in uh, 1986. I mean, that's a post-conflict uh, country. It just so happened that they had really uh, the leadership and the reform-mindedness happened to rest in the Ministry of Finance. And what the Ugandans did in the very early 90s, they actually combined planning and finance. That was a really important factor then, because then there wasn't a separate planning ministry pulling into different direction. So, of course, in Uganda's case initially, the budget reform was running a cash budget they could not finance anything except if they had money in the kitty. 
So, I mean, it started from so low. And if you now visit Uganda, you, you can't imagine that, uh, that it, it was like that. But it was interesting for me to observe how that ministry and its organization and its work developed in your eyes over the several years I, I worked as a country economist, and then how it gradually also spread to other ministries. They would send then some uh, finance um, and economics of education officers into, let's say, the Ministry of Education. But um, what happened in Uganda also is that uh, the key element of the reform was they then got away. Gas budget is terrible to run. I mean, you 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 really in those circumstances, your expenditure program is totally, you know, uncertain. Um, but then it improved all the time, the medium term expenditure framework and, and all that. And then perhaps for an outsider like myself being the bank economist, what you can do is to support that development. And what we did a lot in Uganda, we supported it with new evidence, evidence to the reformers so that they could hone their reform. But it was a fantastic experience to see that Ministry of Finance to kind of grow and then also bring education in. They wanted really uh, to fund much more uh, education and other things that uh, that uh, benefited the population. And can you can you talk a little bit to? I, I I don't think many people really understand and have had firsthand experience in this interaction that is going on between the Ministry of Finance and other ministries, including the Ministry of Education. So there is an interaction, and it goes it goes both ways. It is not only that money is given, but there is an exchange of information. There is an agreement on priorities. When you say that the Ministry of Finance really brought this order and the strong pillar, what in your experience over time then changed in the interaction between the Ministry of Finance and Ministry of Education that helped facilitate some reforms and some, um, some outcomes in, in education in Uganda? In, in the... Like when, when you talk about the concept of medium-term expenditure framework, where you have uh, several years, three years, uh, maybe five years in some cases, of, of, of an idea how your budget develops, it's a, it's, it's a process. It's not a technical device. And I think in Uganda especially, that process of dialogue between the ministries, there, there were a series of meetings and that, they, that, that developed over time. I, I do remember, now that we are on the memory lane, uh, I do remember that we had a really good uh, research analyst in our team, and the government asked, can that research analyst be part of our budget preparation? They did it alone, uh, solely in the Ministry of Finance. And the first night before the... The last night, rather before the budget went to the to parliament, uh, that research analyst stayed there until midnight. Like it was, there was little process, little activity. But then when years went by, 
that research analyst still helped, but then she could already have dinner that previous evening. And it, so the order of the expansion of the involvement of other ministries and the the kind of orderly process, the timetable and and so forth. At the same time, of course, there was also work on poverty was a very big focus uh, as well. So there was work on, on a poverty eradication action plan that then education was key on it. It influenced that. But increasingly, the Ministry of Finance helped the Ministry of Education to develop planning and budget planning capacity. Maybe I can give you an anecdote on uh, on that process. Later on, uh, after several years, I was once leaving um, the Ministry of Finance uh, and uh, go, Kampala, the city center is uh, at that time was small, so I always walked to the World Bank office then. And suddenly I see two army uh, jeeps like approaching the Ministry of Finance. And I see the army guys, there were many sitting there in their, uh, in their actually quite f- the fancy outfits. And I, for a moment, given the history of the country, I thought, ooh, this must be a coup happening right in front of my eyes when they were approaching the Ministry of Finance. And uh, they all jumped out and went in. And I then afterwards asked what was happening they say, oh, that was the Ministry of Defense coming to the medium-term budget framework discussions. And I then thought, yes, this is development. This is institutional development. So it extended surely for education, which is the biggest item in the budget, but also to defense. So that that gave me a great satisfaction of uh, of observing those developments. And it's really fascinating, and I think also speaks to the importance of having a systems framework or a systems perspective. It's not about individual technical solutions, but the one of the important elements of the Ministry of Finance was also they didn't just regulate and you know streamline processes or institutionalize processes with the Ministry of Education, but across the board. And that, of course, is it is an even broader systems framework than we usually at RISE would take. But of course, from a perspective of the Ministry of Finance, it's very true and very relevant. One thing is absolutely have to give credit for the leadership of that ministry. Um, we once, uh, years after, jokingly gave him one of these humongous uh, checks, these demonstrative ch- uh, checks where, where we calculated interest on interest, how much he had contributed to the GDP of Uganda, the figure was humongous. But there was that leadership that was, and in leadership, you really need to have both substance and you need to have process. That's when things change. So that that one also, over the years, you would that would embrace the young people who would come and they were they would all buy into the vision and the work they would work you would go there saturday and people would be working um so that uh, that leadership is also and it happened to be in the ministry of finance at that time 
And that also, there's also an element of trust, trust in process, but also trust in the people that run and oversee the process. Would you, would you agree? I would agree, but maybe with the caveat that from the situation where this country came from, and there are other countries that are both conflict today as well, the building of the trust is an arduous process, and it really took time. And I can't tell you how hard for the first few years it was to run a cash budget. That if you don't get that money, if let's say it was obviously donor money was also important, but but the country's own money is always uh, the most important. If that money didn't come for whatever reason, you couldn't spend, you couldn't pay the teachers, you couldn't do many things. So, so it that trust building happens over time, and uh, but uh, but that. Uh, Finance ministry did build it uh, uh, definitely first amongst itself, itself, and then uh, in the, in the broader system. What it also did, it, it demanded results. It demanded it put it. it uh, we talk about accountability. There was accountability from finance to Ministry of Education. They just didn't take any any explanations. They followed. They had experts in, in their midst. I mean, initially we talk about a handful of people, maybe 10 or dozen or something, but it expanded. And then uh, then you challenge, and, and, and that's really good. And how, you, how this Ministry of Finance challenged was often with the evidence we together, or they themselves, obviously, but also as the World Bank, we provided a lot of evidence to back up the the arguments and the challenges to the Ministry of Education or other ministries. That is also a very interesting point. And maybe we can zoom out a little bit from, from this experience of Uganda, but of course informed by, by what you were mentioning and by your experience. What kind of accountability do you think financing can produce or can help shape? Well, Obviously, financing is is an important element. I think when I'm thinking now, maybe perhaps the context of the World Bank, we always, uh, when, when I worked there, we always said the fact that the bank had financing, it wasn't just a knowledge organization, for instance, um, created a certain type of accountability. I mean, when we worked on the World Development Report 2000, for making services work for poor people. We often talked about the accountability that uh, the, the skin in the game, the, the money can create, or when you have to pay for the service, it's different uh, when when you don't pay all, all those issues. I think the, the accountability also in the Uganda's case, when you do budget reform, at the central level, and you can be in that context or bubble, as we say today. Um, I think for for us, and particularly for me, when I was working as a country economist, the question was all the time, is this making any difference on the ground? Man in the village or woman in the town, is there? Is, is this just 
being felt at all. And that's when we started doing the school surveys and public expenditure tracking surveys and initially asking, does the money even go there where it's supposed to go? And that becomes, a, it's not that an easy question. But um, so finance is obviously one element. I mean, if you think of the World Development Report Triangle, um, it's finance is you delegate, you finance, you perform, you need information on the performance, and and then you need some sanction or reward. That's one way of looking at, at that. So finance is uh, it's like an element in all these relationships between the politics, the, the compact, compact. And when I was talking about the Ministry of Finance and Education, that's the so-called compact between those, the system that delivers that education service and then the kind of the financing, fi Ministry of Finance in this case, that then channels the tax monies, whether they come from domestic or foreign donor sources to the system that delivers. So um, it's important. But I have to say, Carmen, at that time, we were really heavily focused on the finance as because we, we brought the funding and when the UPE, Universal Primary Education, came, we, we did a very large budget support or rather sector support. We, we operated gave it to the system rather than this old-fashioned project approach. So, so finance was really key at that time because the universal primary education was launched pretty much in one month from announcement to implementation and school, the number of school children doubled. So, but we were not thinking at that time of of the learning crisis as we, we didn't know about it. We didn't think, we often thought that results will decline because many more children come to the system and it's probably the top performers that already are in the system. But, um, but all this we did not focus enough at the time. We focused on access and finance a lot. I want to continue with your description of in Uganda, you were very much focused on the universal, universal primary education reform and really the focus on access. Because obviously this was, this was many decades ago, but even today, and this was one of the starting points for some of the RISE research also, we see, we see countries, for instance, India or Indonesia, where there have been massive increases in spending on education. And at the same time, that has not translated into imp significant improvements in learning. To the contrary, in both countries, we could show that the learning outcomes actually declined over the time that there were these, these significant increases. Do you have an insight into why that is? And perhaps... Also, what, what the pitfalls are in financing, because obviously you can do financing in many different ways that may or may not yield good results in, in learning on the ground. Well, um, about India and Indonesia. So if I knew the answer to that, then we wouldn't need 
the RICE program because RICE program is heavily focused on figuring out why is it that the results after all these reforms, for instance, in Indonesia are weaker now or mid-2010s compared to the year 2000. So finance clearly alone, enough finance does not make it. We, we know that. My other country experience personally is I was country director for the World Bank in South Africa. That is the prime case of money not making the difference. Because uh, uh, since the majority government, there was a massive increase in education finance, uh, save revolutions, biggest change ever happened. And it didn't mean that suddenly schooling became learning. Um, so, so um, I, I, I do think the RICE research will highlight some of these issues, but perhaps two observations. One, the one great thing that RICE is doing is, is these ethnographies. That's uh, like, I, I don't know whether I would have never invented uh, such a good idea because like when I really look at the ethnography of, of India, which is done on Delhi by Yamini Ayer and others, um, that is absolutely fascinating description of the system. And, and the little I remember from that paper is, uh, is just that it was the eye opener, but also that that system is run by circulars. It's like 8,000 circulars during a, was it a year or something? Uh, I mean, it it the systems are so co they they are very complex and and it's really great that Rice is trying different methods, not just the economic uh, let's say microeconomic data analysis, but complements it with this type of work to to begin to get uh, get ideas, but. The other thing I often think, and it's really uh, just, uh, I guess, layman thinking more, but I, I often think that um, the education system really reflects the whole society, particularly when I'm in Finland uh, now more than I used to be uh, when I worked full-time at the World Bank. Um, I, I think it reflects the the priorities and the society, what is val valued, what what the history is, etc. It's a, it's it's a complex. It's not a technical systems issue, but at the same time, I the more uh, I work on this, the more the clearer it is to me that you do have to look at the system because a small intervention. Depending on the system, it really um, it can go any way there. But I can't answer you uh, why Indonesia results. I can hear from people who have worked in Indonesia for a long time what a great disappointment the findings are. Um, and and then some like currently I'm involved in a small project of looking at the. School survey data, service delivery indicator data in Mozambique, and just trying to see, identify carefully the impact of teachers on student learning in that very post-conflict environment and society. 
uh, that impact is small. So there certainly teachers are important, but uh, but um, um, it's just puzzling how how small the impact are. Then you think about there must be all other issues, politics, local real power relationships, all all kinds of things. Uh, so. So when you work on systems, it's really important to do so, but it's also sometimes overwhelming. But do you think one needs to think about financing for improving access differently to financing for learning? Because learning is an endeavor, a process that is in itself much more complex. So there must be different challenges in trying to figure out how to finance for learning in the right way and in a productive and in a, in a sustainable way. I can see what you, what you are saying. I haven't thought about it that way. It's not really finance that can solve, that there is a mechanism of financing that then makes learning happen. I, I, I can't imagine that, that there are so many other things uh, that, Uh, that influence the outcome, the final outcome, which is really learning, uh, that finance is an aspect. And I somehow have a feeling that we focused heavily on finance initially and in access, it's not, it's not more natural. But in learning then become the system, the behaviors, the knowledge, um, You know, like when I say knowledge, I think of knowledge of teachers and, and my underlying thought there is because I've been involved in in diagnosing some aspects of the learning crisis in a much kind of geographically wide covering many large part of Africa, actually. But but just diagnosing what what teachers do, what they know and what they have to work with, basically through the service delivery indicators. And, and there, the big shock was initially that teachers don't know the curriculum they are teaching. We didn't expect that. When we did the first pilots, we thought teachers should do, like, get 100% because the teachers are tested in this service. So they should get 100% because they are teaching this curriculum. Then we realized, no, 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 let's give them room for error. So 80% is the minimum uh, required. So we said minimum uh, kind of that they have to pass. In Mozambique, less than 1% of teachers pass that. It's just, it, it, so already that little window to an, one important element, but it's just still one important element, is, 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 The, the world is very different. It's like I, I just initially couldn't believe that that can be true. It must be a false thing. But when you expand systems super fast, like has happened particularly on the African continent, um, then you hire teachers. And, and I think then the issue of politics comes there probably because it was really good for politicians to hire these teachers. These were like cards, thousands, tens of thousands when, when the uh, universal primary schooling expanded that could be hired. And uh, 
And and then there was, uh, you know, more than 20 years ago, there was the HIPIC, the heavily indebted countries debt initiative, where, where in a way, in exchange, in exchange of uh, getting debt forgiveness, um, countries increased a lot. Social spending, especially education, health too, but but education as well. And they could go ahead and hire large cadres. That was really successful, good for politicians, let's say. But then, then you know, those teachers were, were really hired fast and now they are in the system and, and, and for a long time, decades. And, and what was not in place is the vetting and, and, and kind of ensuring that the teachers were on the top of the task. So, and and then there are so many other things. So, system is also it's a it's a difficult thing to master to understand the whole system. It is, and especially with something like delivering learning, that is something very complex where so many different elements have to come together then, of course, the systems analysis also becomes more complex. Yes, yes. And Carmen, perhaps also just to say that then in RISE, you have very different set of countries. You have big countries, all of them are, but then you have different contexts. And and then there is, of course, also this aspect of very strong uh, credential thing that the the main thing is just to pass uh, and perhaps another thing you talked about um, indonesia and um, india i i was really struck in in the pakistan case which is also in rice and when you have jisnu das the principal investigator in the pakistan work they present all the reforms that that country undertook all possible and perhaps impossible reforms as well. They've all done, been done, and yet the results are not really changing that much. So, so that, that is a real fascinating puzzle. Very, very much so. I, I, I completely agree. I really liked, Ritva, what you said about the context specificity and that not every country has a strong ministry of finance and not in every country do these processes work the same way. But I know that you don't only have experience with the ministry of finance in Uganda, but you also have experience in South Africa. Would you like to talk about that a little bit and maybe compare and contrast a little bit? So I was uh, the World Bank's country director in South Africa in um, in the 2000s for four years. And uh, I often think that I was blessed by working very closely with two countries that both have a very strong Ministry of Finance. So the the National Treasury in South Africa is equally a really key um, actor and key uh, linchpin of the reform program and of the the public sector and even the economy. Of course, the South African context is very different. Uh, Its institutional context is different. Its history is different. 
Um, but it also had and still has a very, very strong um, national treasury. So in, in a sense, uh, for me, and when you work in the World Bank, your main counterpart is always the Ministry of Finance in, in the country dialogue. And obviously, then you have teams who focus on education only, etc. But uh, in South Africa, so, so in a way, my intimate contacts and, and, and knowledge of working closely with uh, countries is, is just where, where the overall coordination through finance Ministry of Finance has been really strong. Now, in South Africa, obviously, it just also says that finance alone is is just not enough. Um, is uh, South South Africa really when when the majority rule came invested heavily in education and and transformed the budget. They often said in South Africa that save revolutions, we really uh, increased education spending so much that no other country has. And, uh, and, and, and yet the learning outcomes we know are not good. So there are so many, they, they really aren't good at all. And the money increases did not translate into learning at all in the set. The improvements happened, but but there are so many other things, and uh, that that are involved in it. But um, South Africa, of course, then also they had um, they they contribute a lot to the continent. So they they did um, run a program on on budget reform, et cetera, where many countries participated, including Uganda as well. So they they did uh, public service uh, for the continent. But South Africa is another enigma in in a different way, but, but also demonstrates that money alone just isn't the one. There is so much more needed. So, Ritva, you are from Finland and in that capacity of course in as as part of a of a country of the of the European Union um of course we also think about the donor perspective and donor financing in education you of course have have a lot of experience with what donor financing can do in education and how it's being used what advice do you have for for donor financing for education? In a, in very that is a big question, but in in broad strokes, for um, what has worked and hasn't worked in your experience. On that one, Carmen, actually, I have a sim- simple answer in my mind, which is that the the donor coordination and funding and collaboration. Is really important. It's really important that it happens at the country level. I'm a very strong proponent of the recipient country, so to speak. The developing country uh, is is needs to be in charge. It's such a fundamental thing. Your education system. It it is like I often think in Finland. It's probably 
to to keep the kind of the nation together to keep uh, it, it's 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 a fundamental system for that and other reasons the it really needs the the coordination and collaboration needs to happen at the country level and led by the country. That is my very strong. I actually work uh, quite closely now with the European Union, just in a kind of an advisory capacity, and um, the, the Commission is representing that uh, union. And uh, the, there we discuss this issue, and it's really. What has happened in education, unfortunately, there are lots of actors and different funds and and so forth. Uh, there is a search like how to best coordinate, etc. To me, the guiding principle is coordination needs to happen at the country level and led by the country and supported by the country. And that is sometimes very hard for donors to to agree to, let's say, or implement, because you need to show you are supporters, that you are doing things, you are supporting the right things, and you are right there. But, uh, but that's, um, that's, that's what I what I think about it. Uh, um, and unfortunately, the system has become fairly fragmented, but um, it's still possible to collaborate and coordinate, but when you do it, the country, and as we have discussed here, there are so many different situations in the countries that that suffer from the learning crisis. It's that that is another argument why it just needs to be really focused on the country. I appreciate that. Very singular, strong message from you, Ritva. That is that is excellent. And with that, I would already like to come to the final question in this episode. And this is a question that we will be asking every participant in the podcast, which is, from your experience, what is one thing you wish other people knew about education systems? Your final question is not an easy one. Um, I think everybody knows about education and perhaps thinks that uh, having gone to school that you are an expert in the education system. I do think um, it, it is the system, the RISE work emphasizes that it really is a systemic issue. Uh, you can't, there is not, an intervention or silver bullet or something that can be adapted and evaluated. It's, uh, it's heavily embedded in politics. It's uh, politics in terms of the nation building, in terms of, uh, like I talked earlier about the jobs, uh, you know, the teachers' union, etc. I think the... It's not perhaps that what people knew, but uh, that that people would think more holistically about education, more system-wide, and perhaps our discussion on the on the Ministry of Finance aspect and the whole government. I have always had a problem with 
with the tendency of just getting the ministries of education and being with the education system alone and not having the others to enter that, say, the Ministry of Finance or civil society or something, because uh, it's easier to deal with when you are within your own system. So maybe I could say that what I would like people to think at education system, not just that provider organization and schools and ministry, but the broader context, broader public sector and even societal context, but minimum get out of that box of the just the provider organization, the Ministry of Education and its its remit. So perhaps that would be a wish. That is wonderful because that brings us full circle to uh, the RISE framework and the, the systems perspective that RISE has. So I'm very grateful for this answer. I fully agree and would like to thank you, Ritva, for your time, for agreeing to be on this episode, for sharing your wisdom and your experience. Thank you very much. And I hope you can come back to the podcast sometime. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure and I am surely happy to come back. Thank you, Carmen. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. And if you liked it, be sure to check out our research at riseprogram.org or follow us on social media at riseprogram. You can find links to the research mentioned and other work shared under the description for this podcast episode. The RISE podcast is brought to you by the Research on Improving Systems of Education RISE program through support from the UK's Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office, Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation.